Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Spectrum One is a big deal. You get Spectrum Internet with the most reliable internet speeds, free advanced Wi-Fi for enhanced security and privacy, and a free Spectrum Mobile Unlimited line with nationwide 5G included, all while saving big. For the big speed, big reliability, and big savings you want, get Spectrum One. Just $49.99 a month for 12 months. Visit spectrum.com slash big deal for full details. Offer subject to change. Valid for qualified residential customers only. Service not available in all areas. Restrictions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Welcome, welcome, welcome back to the Bob Left Sets podcast. My guest today is the one and only legendary Joan Baez. Joan, the new movie is out. I am a noise. Now that it's out, how do you feel about it? Well, the response has been absolutely extraordinary and wonderful. Um, but even before that, I recognized it as a superb work of art. And that doesn't even have that much to do with me. It's the filmmaking. I mean, I'm glad they were making it about me. <laughs> but it is really a work of art. And, and it it was meant to be an honest legacy, and it did turn out to be that. Well, it's one thing to have private conversations. It's another thing to hear your see your story depicted on the big screen for everybody. You talk about a lot of personal elements, depression, relationships. Do you squirm a little bit seeing it up there, or do you say, no, that's me, that's fine? The funny thing, what I squirm about is something like a vocal lesson. The other, you know, it's me, it's fine. I, I didn't know how I'd feel. Plus, I wasn't there when I made it. I had nothing to say about it. At the very, very end, they, do you want to have a look? But it's too late to do anything about it. So um, I didn't know what extent of it would be cringeworthy. But the little parts that are now just make me laugh. And I know that as a whole, whatever is in there is in there for a reason. And, you know, I mean, I've got nothing to lose now, really. <laughs> Family's gone. I'm 82. Um, and if I want to be honest, let's just let it all hang out. So that's what we did. So you talk a lot about uh, depression in the movie. When did you first feel that you were different from other people, that you felt depressed? Well, it's funny about depression. My mother was depressed her whole life, but didn't know it until she took an antidepressant when she was in her 80s. 
<laughs> so you don't know. You just know. I mean, for me, speaking for me, I didn't know that word. I didn't know. I just knew I was different. I knew other kids didn't um, feel sick in the morning, didn't, you know, I, that, those are the things that made me feel different, you know, in another world from, from my classmates. So do you take medication now? Yes, I do. Um, for the deep work that I did to to really go through the tunnel and come out what I consider to be a healthy human being, we had to find um, the, the appropriate medication that would allow me to work. If I was working from a place of of depression and I didn't have really didn't have my faculties available to me, it I don't think it could have worked. It would have been really really painful. Um, so to find that takes some experimenting, you know, and then we came up and, and, and I still, it's different now because it internally one changes and periodically something will go off and I'll review the medication, see what maybe, you know, I need less of or more of, et cetera. But uh, no, I'm still on it. It's a steady, I, I'm joking about it in the film. You know, I say I'm taking it seasick pills and anti-nausea pills and up and down pills and then on top of that I take my own stuff so my own stuff is what's consistent yeah so how is your outlook and feeling differently different now that you're on medication I don't think that's the question uh, I think the question is how is it different from the work that I did um I think, well, okay, do this way. If I stopped all the medication, I think I would be in pretty big trouble. But that isn't the issue because I'm, I found what's appropriate to keep the highs from being too high and the lows from being too low. Um, and then it's more about the work that I have done and to some degree still do, but I don't see a therapist anymore. You know, I'm really free of that. Um so, no, it, it is. It's about the work. It's about having done the work. Okay. In the film, you say that you ultimately do this deep work at a relatively advanced age, uh, inspired by your sister, Mimi. Mm -hmm. Can you tell us a little bit more how that comes to be? Well, she was, um, she and I always knew there was something wrong. I mean, there's something wrong with our relationship, but we never understood why. Um and then, we sh but she was the first one to think, whoopsie, you know, maybe it was something that we really, that was really buried. And did I, was I interested in going investigating that with her? And so we both embarked on this journey and um, came up with very similar stories and supported each other through it in spite of our difficulties together. You know, we, we really were there to support each other on our mutual journeys. Well, in the movie, there's issues of abuse, which your father denies, and the two of you believe happened. Uh, how did you reconcile your father's denials with what you felt? You know, I read a, I was reading a book of a famous actor who I will not name, but he, he discovered that he was abused by a priest when he was eight. And he struggled with that for his entire lifetime. And at one point, 
decided he was going to call this old man, you know, who had abused him and other kids. And he called him ready to just say, you know, you son of a bitch, you whatever. And he realized he couldn't say anything. This old guy was, you know, a, a pleasant old man who was living probably a fairly decent life, having passed the stage where he had to do all his shenanigans. And he didn't, and he realized he guy didn't remember. I mean, he buried it. And I don't know how that happens, but obviously it happened to me. Um, so I, the reason I could forgive my parents is that I, I knew they didn't remember anything. And that, that's one of the hardest things for people to understand. Because, I mean, just the expression on your face, for instance, on Zoom is, what, <laughs> what, what the fuck is that about? Okay, so how do you find a box to put that in all these years later? Um, I guess the process of discovering um, who did what to whom is a long process and a deep process. And I, I guess the best answer to that is, is putting in my little multiple helpers, and that's what they're there for. And... Um, just somebody helps take the take the load off each you know each time there's a fresh realization um there are different ways there are different places to put it and different ways to deal with it and it's ongoing you know it's on it's constant through that time period of discovery in the movie you say a number of times you're not good at relationships do you think that's as a result of the abuse I think that for when I talk to people, everybody goes, ha, 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 yeah, me too. So I don't, I think one-to-one, one-on-one -one, one -on -one relationships are probably the hardest things that for us human beings to tackle. Um, I think that it's exacerbated by the fact that we once trusted and that trust was taken away, you know, so, so who do you trust? Um, you, you, you don't to, to be intimate means you have to trust the other person to open yourself up to the other person so I'm kind of joking when I say I'm I mean I'm really good one on 2000 because I am um, and I never I mean towards the end of the, the the time period that I was really working on this stuff I reached a level of wholeness uh, that I couldn't have imagined before and my therapist said, he started hinting around about, well, you know, maybe the next step is to try and find somebody, to find a partner. And I, I said, no, this <laughs> I'm happy here. I don't want to take on that load, which would take another 10 years. So um, that was just a decision I made because I know that I don't have the patience um, to disrupt my life again when it's reached this really really happy level now we've had covid the last handful of years really been crazy but what does your everyday life look like are you more of a homebody do you go out i um homebody i would say out of those two choices very much a homebody um i guess i've been out enough for 60 years traveling around and i thought oh you know when i'm through with that then i can go visit these places and just hang out and see stuff, all the things I didn't do while I was traveling, but I haven't really had any interest in getting back on a plane. The only thing I've been doing is hopping around the country talking about this film. And uh, 
you know, at some point that might change because uh, because right now it's I don't have a what's a normal day for Joan. You know, when I'm not working on something, a normal day for Joan is more time on the property. There's a creek on this property where I spend a lot of time. It's my one of my happy places. I collect rocks. I mean, I do. I talk to trees. <laughs> uh, I live a life full of nature, as much as, as much nature as I can fit in there. Okay. You're someone who is attractive, outspoken, legendary, famous. I have to believe when you're out and about, to use the vernacular, men are hitting on you. <laughs> what a nice thought. Um, I mean, it's a nice thought because at this age, it's a question of sensuality, sexuality. Where is where is that? Um, when I was talking to Jane Fonda, she said, oh, I closed up shop a couple of years ago. And I said, well, I don't know what's, what is here at this point to be hit upon. Um, I feel very vibrant. Um, and I would be delighted to know men were hitting on me. <laughs> As long as I don't have to hit back. So if a man is warm and congenial, you basically send a vibe. At best, we're on the friend level. Probably. Probably, yeah. And when you were a young person, what vibe did you send? Oh, I think really confused messages. I mean, really, I look back at, at myself and my schoolmates, they couldn't understand me. I mean, I didn't understand me, but it was a very confusing message that I sent out. And I'm thinking also when we moved to Baghdad, for we were there for a year, my family, and I would write my classmates, and they never responded. And I was telling them all about Baghdad. Well, they had no point of reference. It wasn't interesting to them. They didn't know what I was talking about. So it was just one more, I guess what I'm saying is that when we, we moved a lot, and so I never really did have time to 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 hang out and, and get friends. So I don't know whether I really was capable of doing that or not. But the messages, I, a girlfriend from those days, there were a few people who were really kind to me. And this girl was so sweet and would go through the, when I was having a panic attack, she'd be helpful and she would be there. And then years and years later, like decades later, I got a letter for her, from her saying, oh, now I get it. <laughs> she had developed a phobia of bridges, of going over a bridge. And that, you know, all of a sudden, oh, that's what my strange friend Joan was going through. <laughs> well, when did you have your first panic attack? Oh, Jesus, I don't know. I mean, it depends probably on how you define it when you're really little, pretty little. And if you told your mother you were feeling this way, what would she say? Oh, she, um, I wanted to be with my mom because she would say, oh, let's have a cup of tea. I mean, I'd run home from school in kindergarten. That my first day of kindergarten, I remember, and I found my way back home because I couldn't, I was too scared to be there. And instead of saying, well, we're going to take you back and talk to the teacher, she said, oh, let's have a cup of tea. 
you know, so that did two things. It was my comfort zone, but also helped keep me from dealing with the reality out there. I'm still glad she did it. (laughs) Okay, so you led this itinerant lifestyle, and you talk about not being able to make friends. How much of that was situational, and how much of that was you? Well, yeah, that's what I was trying to say just now, that um, because we travel like that, and I don't know if we'd ended up somewhere for 10 years, would I have developed, you know, relationships? Would they have been healthy? Would they have been healthy relationships? I mean, I, this first time I thought of it in those terms, but if I had stayed somewhere, I really don't know. I can't imagine that I would really develop a, a you know, a healthy bunch of friends around me that I wanted to, to hang out with and, you know, do whatever normal kids do. So at this late date, how integrated, how mean, do you talk to other people on the phone? Do you hear from email or you're more <laughs> of an ice, you're more of an isolated person with your team? No, no, I, I, I have the emails and the text coming and going and yeah, no, I'm not isolated in that sense. Really. It's just not, I just really don't want to go anywhere. I don't want to, I don't go to many concerts. I don't, it's just like, oh, you know, I'm going to stay home. <laughs> And I have lots of friends now. I have good friends. Okay. We have, mov- we have movie night, and there are six women who watch it. This happened when my mom was still alive for 10 years. In her little house, we'd have movie night the first Tuesday of every month. Well, I'm still doing that. And then I have another group of friends. We dance together. We used to dance in the city, and now it's now we just dance on Zoom once a week. Um and that's and then I have a, a group I call the Gang of Eight, and they're people I refer to for anything political, to discuss with them and, and ask their suggestions and their thoughts. So some of those overlap, but I have a lot of friends. So how do you pick the movies, and what are some good movies you've seen? <laughs> how do you pick the movies? Oh, usually it's somebody has a plan. And then we start talking about it, and the plan switches, and then we just turn on TV and see whatever comes up. We turned on the Prime one night, and uh, on the waterfront was on, and it was and it was, you know it was a no brainer. It was so wonderful, especially compared to so much of the trash that's, <laughs> that's out now. To see a you know really good. Sometimes you just want to be silly. I think the next one I have in my mind for us to watch is Tootsie. I haven't seen it for years. Uh, you know, it would make us laugh. Um, and then there are serious nights. There are nights when there's political stuff going on and we'll brave it. You know, I'll watch something that's hard to watch. And this group of eight that you check in with political stuff on, what kind of topics have you been broaching recently? Well, you know, obviously the most recent is the Middle East, where we all pretty much decide with the exception of few things, I wish I had them in front of me because there are a few things that you can do and go and be with. Um, it's such an agonizing situation. And we're all, you know, and have been nonviolent activists for most of our lives. And there comes a point when things are in such full flow, there's very little room Um for nonviolent action, although there is some. And you know what's nonviolent action? It's those wonderful women who are thanking their captors and getting 
getting hell for it because they're supposed to be resentful and, and, and shabby and this woman, I guess, shaking hands with her abductor, with her kidnapper. Has he treated her well? She's saying thank you. That's, that is an act of, of strength, of real strength. Your ascent in your career coincided with the advent of the 60s, a youth quake blowing up, politics was everything, the, the uh, younger generation was a great percentage of the population, there was the Vietnam War, in 1970 there was Kent State, there was a so-called return to uh, the land, people licking their wounds, and then we had the Iran crisis in the next decade and people were talking about bombing iran with the perspective you have it's like is there any hope can we you know or is this just endemic to society i don't really know i know that uh, you know people would assume that i'm an optimist i never have been i struggle to not be a pessimist pessimist. Somebody suggested it was a waste of time, and I think that's true. I, I struggle with hope. Um, somebody said, uh, hope is a discipline. And it's, it's like a muscle that has to be exercised, for me, for somebody who's glass half empty and sometimes all the way empty. I think the trick is that I've always done what I've done anyway, whether I was optimistic about it or not. Um, the, the moral compass would just dictate what I did next. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney Collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility Dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. 
in the movie, it hints at the fact that you always knew you were different. You were charismatic. You were going to be successful. When did you internally recognize that? I don't know about being successful. I don't think that word was in my vocabulary. I had total faith in my voice. I might have been, you know, had squeamish about everything else or thought I wasn't good enough or thought I was a dumb Mexican, whatever. But once that voice started to, I'd say by 16, I was sure that it was special. By the time I was 20, and there was nothing could have, could have, um, interfered with my feelings about my own voice so i don't know what your question was now well okay well you <laughs> felt that voice to be successful in the world of entertainment talent is at most 50 percent. the other 50 percent <laughs> is drive and uh yeah. need etc so where did that drive and need come from i think i don't see myself as ambitious and I think it's probably because I didn't have to be. Uh, I had to get ambitious enough to keep going when the career fell apart. Fell apart, and that's all in the film. It's pretty clear. But at the beginning, my idea of the future was the following Wednesday. You know, I I didn't have some kid asked me once, and I was about seventeen. If I thought I was going to be famous, and I hadn't even thought about it. Oh, it seemed like a fun idea once he said it. I didn't. I mean, I thought that would be kind of cool. Um, and once I had a, I was seeing a psychiatrist, and I was twenty. And I told him I'd had a dream that I was singing with Harry Belafonte. And he said, "Don't you think you're having delusions and grandeur?" And I said, "No." <laughs> that begs the question: Did you ever sing with Harry Belafonte? Yes, I did. Yeah, I did on marches. And yeah, what a wonderful guy. Okay, so your family moves to Boston. How do you end up playing at Club 47? Well, I have to say, good old dad took his three daughters and his wife into Cambridge because he'd seen with his own eyes these um, coffee shops. And he knew that, you know, I was starting to play guitar and starting to learn folk music. And he took us into, into Cambridge. And he took us into um, Harvard Square. We walked around. I remember looking in a door of one of these coffee shops and seeing a guy playing guitar, singing, sitting under this yellow light, everybody smoking, and all these students, you know, discussing whatever. And that kind of was, it was a bingo, you know. That's what I wanted to do. I wanted to go and beg every song off of him and everybody I knew, everybody I met, and have them teach me, teach me the guitar. Okay, so <laughs> what happened first? The learning process? Did you woodshed for a while, or at what point did you get up on stage and then perform for others? Oh, very fast. Because I was, what, 18 or 19 at Newport? Um, I had already sung, <laughs> I sang this thing for the Shriners. I mean, I would go where somebody said, hey, and I was 16, I'm in high school. So-and-so wants you to come and sing for their class. Okay, I'd go sing for their class. Some's dad was with the Shriners. They wanted me to come and sing for the Shriners. And I went and I sang and this drunken old Shriner came over and he said, honey, don't sign cheap. 
<laughs> Isn't that great? <laughs> Phenomenal. That was really funny. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Was your first public outing Club 47 or did you play at other clubs before that? No, that was the first one and almost the only one. I mean, it was became home and I started off on every, two, I think it was every Tuesday at $10. That was a big deal. Then they added, a, uh, probably, I think it was Tuesdays and Fridays, then it went up to $15, and I really felt <laughs> really felt like a rich girl. And I had had two jobs. I had had one job at uh, Boston Vespa Company, where I taught people how to drive Vespa. <laughs> well, I have to ask, if you're driving Vespas, did you ever crash? Yes, I, I did once, but it was on a motorcycle. It was on a little tiny, stupid motorcycle. But yes, I did fall over once. I was on my way to my psychiatrist, and I told him what happened. He said, are you crazy? <laughs> <laughs> That's a stupid question. Anyway, where did I, where did I veer off just now? You were talking um, about playing Club 47, working your way oh, yeah. up the ladder. Yeah. Um, I I played one week. The first night I played, there was my mother and father, two sisters, and one other person. I don't remember who that was. That was it. Probably the owners of the club. And then whatever happened between that and the following week, it was then full. And I don't remember what happened. Whoa, whoa, whoa. And then, If there were only your family members there, mm -hmm. why did everybody show up a week later? I <laughs> I don't know, and I don't know if anybody knew on that first night, or if the word got out, or I don't know, but it was really fast, and then shortly after that, Albert Grossman, who handles just about everybody in the folk world, um, invited me to come to Newport, wanted me to go to Newport, and so... Um, so I went, and that was the, you know what I'm thinking when I'm going through this? I had already been to Chicago, to the Gate of Horn, to sing Which it. Which was in. Grossman's club. It was his club, and it was um, a real club. And people drank and stuff, and it was a big deal for me, because I didn't think that was appropriate. <laughs> people drank anywhere. So, And I was there for a couple of weeks, opening for Bob Gibson. That's okay, that's how it goes. And then Gibson was singing at Newport. And he invited me, and Odette invited me, and that's where, that's where it all kind of popped. Let's go a little bit slower. You're sure. playing Club 47. You're going to college. How do you end up dropping out of college? Oh, that was easy. <laughs> that was the easy part. I Literally, I was there for about six weeks. I mean, after that, it was just pretending to my parents that I was in school. I, I don't think there were, I didn't know there were that many ways to flunk. There was, um, you know, there was a zero, there was an F, there was a missing an action, whatever they are. But the only grade I got that was decent was um, art class. And it was because they studied the Lascaux Caves. And I was so enthralled with that, that I actually paid attention. Okay, but your, your father's an academic. How does he feel about you dropping out of college? Horrible. <laughs> but but he knew. I mean, my old Pauline went to college just really for him. She had no desire to go, and she didn't last there. And I, I was so out of it. By the end of high school, 
everybody's talking about college boards. I didn't know what a college board was, and I was too embarrassed to ask. And anytime anybody said it, I just pictured a two-by-four plank, a board. And that, and that, and I wouldn't go be, I wouldn't ask any questions beyond that. And then my mother was trying to get me interested in one of the East Coast girls' schools, you know, Bennington, where it's free for the arts and encouraged arts and music. And I went to the interview with Mimi and my parents, and it was a complete disaster. She'd say something like, well, what are your study habits like? And I'd say, I don't have any, you know. <laughs> It was just horrible, and I didn't get in. And the only place I got into was Boston University Fine Arts. Okay, so you're at Club 47. You obviously are feeling good that there's an audience, you're making money. <laughs> what At what point do professionals say, hey, kid, you know, you should come here and make a deal with me? Well, actually, that happened when I was in high school, and these two... Uh, they remind me of the of those sneaky guys in Pinocchio. They kind of came in and said, come on, little girl, we're going to make an album. And all I had was stuff like Annie Had a Baby and uh, Work With Me, Annie, and uh, six Belafonte songs. Um, so I went and did everything I knew, and they pressed it, and it was one that we banned can't remember the name of it, but it was really, really early. And then it was that, come on, honey, we're going to make you famous. And then um, uh, it happened in a nice way that all at Grossman time period, I was then 19, I think. And he wanted me to sign with Columbia, which is where everybody was going. And I was just leery of the size of it, you know, gold records on the walls. And I wanted to talk to Vanguard, which is basically a classical music company. And first I went to Columbia with Grossman and I literally developed a cold while I was sitting there and he's over my shoulder saying, sign here. And I said, no, I had to fight it. No, I want to go talk to Vanguard first. And of course I was more comfortable at Vanguard and it was a wonderful decision. It was a wonderful decision because? Because it was the right company for me. Um, the Maynard Solomon owned the company, and he produced my albums, and he understood and loved folk music, and he you know, he helped me with always with the songs I was going to choose. And, yeah, I don't know what the path would have been if I'd gone on Columbia. Probably fine. Probably would have been fine, but I think for me to stay um, oriented, for me to not go tip over, it's probably safer to be with Vanguard. Okay, you start to have the success very quickly. How mm -hmm. do you cope with the attention? Very few people are in this situation. Yeah. And very few people are in this situation that quickly. Yeah. But there's a lot of tumult. There's no one from your regular life who understands what you're going through. Yeah. So... What was it like for you? Well, part of it was really exciting because there I was with an identity and there I was with people paying attention to me and I had value and worth. Um, and then, so, so that would, it's like reading reviews. If you read good reviews, you get all puffed up. If you read bad ones, you get miserable. 
you know, so what do you do with your life? And that you believe everybody was saying wonderful things about you. I know that my Quaker background was helpful because I understood about being quiet and I understood about meditation and I understood about, you know, that, that I was just so, so small in this, in the greater scheme of things. And so I did a lot of meditation and prayer um, back then to sort of try and keep me on the right path. And not that I was always on the right path, but I, but I tried at an early age, I tried and I was a little neurotic. I didn't, I mean, I didn't want anything on the stage. I want pitch black. I want no frills. And I thought it would be easier for everybody. And it wasn't, it was just as difficult. People had planned to pour roses on the stage and, you know, and then once I said, no, no more limousines for me. I don't want any more limousines because I felt too privileged. And that lasted a couple of months and somebody showed up in this broken down Volkswagen bus. And I said, give me the limousines back. And I've been happy in them ever since. I wish they didn't need so much gas. What about the Me Too moment? Um, I was not, not active in that. And, you know, it wasn't speaking about myself at that point so um, i guess what i'm saying is you're a young girl 20 years old you're in business you're a hot commodity any woman woman who's 20 years old even at this late date with new consciousness it's a volatile situation say which situation sorry uh sexually charged with men trying to take advantage of you oh i see well um I think I was in some ways too puritanical at some point, and then they didn't take advantage. I just went ahead and slept with them. <laughs> okay, this is an. Er- <laughs> I don't know this- if it's okay or not, but I'm just trying to be honest. Oh, right, great. But the this is an era with the folk music scene. We even end up with a TV show about folk music, Hootenanny, prior to the Beatles. But Dylan comes along in the early 60s, first album is covers, but then he starts to write. Did you feel any pressure to write? Did you feel different from the people who wrote? You know what? I never even considered it because I just considered that I was an interpreter of um, folk ballads, folk music. And it was somebody after 10 years in said, well, are you ever going to write anything? And that's the first time I'd really thought about it. And that's when I, I wrote um, Sweet Sir Galahad. And so I sort of proved to myself that, yeah, I could write. And then after that, I, I enjoyed it. I mean, I wrote a bunch of things. And <laughs> what did you feel when the Beatles came along? Oh, I loved the Beatles. I was in their, I was when they, I might have been their first show in the States. And certainly the first tour I was in Denver. And they were at Red Rocks. I'd been at Red Rocks, and they were there the next night. And um, I, I met them. They're absolutely charming and funny. And they were so thrilled in that hotel room. They had a whole floor to themselves. What got them most excited was the fact that there was a Coca-Cola machine you didn't have to put any money in. <laughs> 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 that was it. Looks this dude put put a coin in and he gets a Coca Cola out. They were happy. Did you have any idea that the British invasion was coming and this might negatively impact your career? 
neither. <laughs> I, I I learned as 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 everybody else did. They started, you know, this they just one hit after another in this massive phenomenon, and um, had you know was fortunate enough to spend a little time with them. Well, did you wake up in the later years and say, wait a sec, you know, you talk about the 70s in the movie, but even in the 60s, you'd say, wait a second, you know, I'm not the hot thing and the direction seems to be going somewhere else. Yeah, that was a little later because I was a hot thing for maybe 15 years or something. Uh, and then I was, you know, still more than tepid for the next five or six years. Um, okay, question again. Well, let me, let me back into it you are famously in the woodstock movie okay Mm -hmm. no one else is like you you're pregnant you're talking about your husband in jail when you see that or when you're reminded of that do you feel comfortable or do you feel you're being so authentic that you wince in some way (laughs) no i you know i don't wince much in this i was young dylan was young we still had our baby fat we got to forgive ourselves for, for some things. No, I, there are a couple of times when I laugh at the gall I had, we're going to start a peace movement um, <laughs> and talking. It, it was just rolling off the tongue, you know, and that's what I felt. And it's kind of, it's not cringeworthy, just sort of amazing and slightly funny. And then I went on and did as much of that as I could in my lifetime. Okay. So tell me about the realization in the seventies, that you're talking about after 15 years in the business that, wait a second, I seem to be in my own little eddy and it seems to be a, uh, have passed me by. Well, I think it doesn't realization doesn't come that fast. First it's how come this hall isn't full? They must not have gotten the advertisements out in time. You know, um, everything it's finger pointing time. It couldn't never dawned on me that I would have anything but a full house. Because that's how it started out, and that's how it was. So that was the beginning, um, just the very beginning. Because it took years, really, to catch up with um, with my life as a musician. I, I was stead- way steadier with the politics. I mean, that was I was on solid ground with that. Um, so yeah, I think. And I start the film off by saying, I don't think anybody who's ever been famous thinks it's ever going to stop especially if you're that young you know there's no frame of reference except you know there was my own so you know you talk in the movie about having success with diamonds and rust and then switching managers was a bad decision now if you many musicians from that era will tell you they're living off the publishing and the performing rights money that you can get mailbox money when you're sitting at home but you right. didn't write that many songs. That's so right. So how has it worked out for you financially? I had some really good people around me. Otherwise, I'd be a mess. But I had, I did pick wonderful people. And they worked me through that quagmire um, because they knew what they were doing. And I'm fine. I am not a, you know, I am not a millionaires. I, I never will be that interested in making that kind of money. Um, So I'm good. 
This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Okay. I love Walker Hayes. He's amazing. He's so fun. Such a great entertainer. And that's why I'm so excited that JCPenney and country music singer-songwriter Walker Hayes are partnering together on a new limited-time men's collection for the everyday guy. The Walker Hayes for JCPenney collection is an upbeat playlist of instant classics with laid-back appeal and down-home vibes. As a dad of seven kids, he knows exactly what fathers want and need when it comes to their style. This collection reflects his casually cool styles with outdoor-inspired details and versatile colors. Perfect for the guy living the t-shirt life or someone wanting some fresh options that feel just as good. It's easy to wear affordable styles that celebrate the ultimate family man, along with the quality, durability, and sensibility dads appreciate. Available online Saturday, May 4th at jcp.com and in-store Thursday, May 16th. Just in time for Father's Day. Limited time only. JCPenney, make it count. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Okay, you write diamonds in rust. Uh, it ends up becoming very successful even on FM radio, which is getting harder and more corporate at the time, you're writing about the 10 years before, 12 years before with Bob Dylan. Did this cause any, let me put it this way. Did you say, I'm going to do this? Or did you say, mm, you know, I'm trading on the past. I'm trading on Dylan. This might not be the right thing to do. No, I wasn't trading on anybody. I just wrote the song. I had no idea. That, that it was going to become popular. In fact, I was writing another song to that melody, and, and it's true. Bob called from a phone booth in the Midwest, and he told, read me one of his songs, and that's where the whole song was triggered. Um, then I just had written a song. And anyway, if you didn't know um, the history of Bob and me to some degree, fortunately, it still holds up as a song. It absolutely does, but there was so much information back then. So this phone call took place when? Oh, I'm not going to remember. Please don't ask me dates. No, what I'm, I'm trying to say is, was this a memory of a phone call in the 60s, or was this just before you wrote the song? It was just before I wrote the song. Yeah. So you had maintained contact with Bob Dylan over these years? Um. Not really. I mean, it was sort of out of the blue that Betty called. Yeah, it was not, you know, we weren't buddies all that time. And do you talk to him at all now? Mm, I don't know if anybody does. <laughs> He's busy on tour, then going back to the bus. So you meet him, 
when his career is very nascent. And then in 65, he has a giant radio hit like a Rolling Stone. You go to England with him. Did you see him change? This is, you know, you, in the movie, you talk about the fact you wake up one day, go, what am I doing here? This is not my world. Mm-hmm. Okay. Did he change with success? Was that part of it? Well, I think so. I think so. Um, and it was, it also says in the film, it happened very quickly that suddenly there was this crush of people around him. It had started, but just kids, you know, fans, um, wanting to to be be around him and adore him and then um it was a slightly different scene going to europe yes there were all those fans but then there was his sort of cluster of in-house people of the in crowd and that's where i was not comfortable i think i was welcomed but i wasn't comfortable and in the end you know those that that group of people um it was really a druggy group and I didn't, I didn't fit in. I didn't, it wasn't part of, of my circles. So in terms of your own drug, as we said back then, experimentation, were you, did you go through that? Was it never your thing or you dabbled? No, the only thing ever, and it's also in the film was many years later, got onto Quaalude. And and took a lot of Quaalude for about eight years. But while everybody else was doing all this stuff, they were leaving these pills on the stool by, by their microphone. And, you know, it probably was great stuff, but I just didn't relate to it. I'd throw it in my purse and it would turn to powder. Um, so I, I wasn't, I just didn't relate to it. For whatever, I don't think they're virtuous reasons. I think I'm probably just scared. Um so quaaludes and sopers, which are the same thing, start to happen in the early 70s. So how do you first start taking quaaludes? I can't remember. I can't remember because I was so scared of taking anything. I must have taken an eighth of it or something and then a sixth of one. Um, and I never took, mommy, a half of them. Half of one was probably the most I ever took at a time. So what? What was the motivation to continue to take them all those years? Comfort zone. It was made my life easier, made meeting people, laughing, going to restaurants, all the things that, that were, had a lot of anxiety. It took away the anxiety. That's the real answer to your question. Yeah. So even at this late date, although we're all older, did you have a level of social anxiety like if someone called you up, oh, we're going to go to dinner. There's going to be seven people there you don't know. Would you say, oh, sounds great. When I show up, you say, well, you know, I really have something I want to do at home. I'd rather not. <laughs> no. Um, when you're saying that, I don't go to, to dinner that much. But when I go with my pals, we have a wonderful time. You know, I, I, I think it's boiling down to, and I hadn't thought about all this till we started talking. Um, I don't know how many friends one really needs. Um, I th- no, I'm not interested in going to parties. I'm not interested in going to places where they just look like really nice people. And then somebody says, oh, I saw you in 1972 and I was wearing a plaid shirt sitting in the front row. I think, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> not interested, you know. But I, I try to be nice because that meant something in that person's life. Somebody gave me a great T-shirt once that said, please don't tell me your story. <laughs> and then he proceeded to tell me his long story about how he found the t-shirt 
<laughs> anyway, it's about people wanting to place themselves in in your life or place you and what what it meant to them. So, and it meant a lot. So, I think treating them decently is the you know what I can do. Okay, so you're a famous person. You're out and about on tour. You're in an airport. Whatever. Everybody who comes up to you tells you a story. They want to. You travel with me someday, and it's just, I see it in their eyes, and they, they take a big breath, and they say, I saw you. I say, oh, fuck, here we go. <laughs> you know? And I was in the front row, and they almost, a lot of people will start with, you may not remember me, but. And I'm thinking, <laughs> oh, you know, the chances of my remembering you are like one in a million, but how do I? You know, let that person know that they count as a person um, and try to avoid this. Sometimes I'll just say, no stories. No stories, please. Well, that's one of the reasons I don't talk on the phone. People bullshit me. <laughs> it's like, get to the ask. What do you want so I can say no so I can hang up? <laughs> Perfect. Because we're getting to the ask when I do Q&A after the film. And you have to say, Please just ask a question. I am not oh. interested in hearing. Yeah, got to say it. Sometimes they actually do. That drives me <laughs> crazy. They have Q&A and somebody stands up to make a comment. We don't give a shit what you have to say. The people <laughs> on the stage are the ones. But yep. just to drill down a little bit further on this, not now, but when you were throughout your life brought into situations where you may or may not have been the focus and there were people you didn't know did that cause extreme anxiety? You know, as you're saying that, I sort of picture myself. I was, I was protected somehow because I was already separate from them. I wasn't vying for a friendship position, or I knew I looked okay. You know, I was established in myself. I might not have been very interested, and I might have been. I, I might have gotten more out of it if I'd been more interested and more open, but I was okay. For the most part, I was okay. And living as a famous person where people treat you differently your whole life, good, bad, or otherwise? How would I know? Well, sometimes, I mean, everybody can tell. You can perceive that when you're in a group of people, they're treating you differently from the other people in the room. <laughs> No, but what I mean is that's gone on more of my life than not, you see. So that's what I mean by how would I know. Um, I wouldn't. Well, I understand your point. It's your life, you know, if only, but you can tell when someone's being a sycophant. Oh, yeah, I can. And um, uh, the, the clearest I've ever had to be was just say, get the fuck out of here, you know. <laughs> I get what you're trying to say. I am not interested. Stop saying it. Now I'm, I'm going to call the tour manager and get the fuck out of here. <laughs> and in your everyday life, when somebody calls you on your shit, are you good with that or not good with that? I'm pretty good with that. I've had enough therapy to be pretty good with that. In fact, you know, you ask to be called on your shit. You have to ask because it's hard for people to, you know, somebody standing there buttoned up wishing that you would change or you have to unbutton and, and and i have to hear it okay in the movie we do see richard farina it does not mention the book he wrote which is one of the most impactful books i've ever read been down so long it looks like up to me read as a freshman in college 
What can you tell us about Richard? Richard was an interesting guy. He fancied himself a man about the world, and in some ways he was, and in some ways he was a big blowhard. Um, I can tell you that he and I, for a while, would get into these, um, it, we'd have these dinners with Mimi and some friends, and Dick and I would get into some goofy story being East Indians or being whatever. And we go back and forth and creating this play, and we realized everybody had left because they were bored. It was just Dick and me. And then at a certain point, I, you know, I sort of got tired of it because Mimi wasn't growing. She wasn't happy. And, um, and then, you know, after he died, he lived on with her forever. I mean, she couldn't let go of him, and he couldn't let go of her. Now, Mimi had a singing career. To what degree could your sisters accept or resent your incredible success? Well, I think a lot of that is in the film, um, that there were two different reactions. Pauline, the older sister, had to just leave. I mean, she the closest I ever heard her come to saying what she was able to say in, in the film was that I sucked up the oxygen in the room. And that's why she would sometimes not be able to share in whatever time we were having. And then Mimi was more complicated because Mimi really wanted to be me in some ways. And she wanted to be a singer. And it's true. And she asked me, and I'll never know whether I should have said, absolutely, Mimi, and just backed her the whole way. I don't even know what that would have meant. Um, but I told her what I thought was the truth which is that it was going to be a rough road with um, Big Sister, and, and it was. You're talking about Pauline, your older sister, saying you sucked up the oxygen. Before you were famous, before you played at Club 47, did you suck up all the oxygen in the family? I think so. That's a very good question. Yes, I think the answer is yes. Because I, I, Pauline's feelings would get hurt, and I didn't understand why. And then later on, as we moved through life, I would see that I would get attention. Um, for instance, when I was 13, um, somebody gave me, gave us each a ukulele. And Pauline went to a room to, to learn how to play that because she was, you know, she was a perfectionist. And I learned two chords with flying downstairs and sang a song for everybody. So where does that leave Pauline? No, there were things like that that happened constantly. And I wasn't really aware of them. I was just aware. I might have been, you know, it might have been competitive, saying, well, ha ha, I did this before she did. But I think it was more, I could now go and get, you know, and get people's attention. So, what was it about you that you were the charismatic one and you wanted all the attention? You're the middle child. Usually the oldest child is that person. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I don't know how the stars lined up or the, any of it. Um, it's just, uh, I think that there are genetics, there are the situations you've, I mean, there was Baghdad. We all had a huge reaction to Baghdad. Which know? was? Mimi was um, one of the sisters threw her paper. She struggled through some 
paper we're supposed to write and wadded it up and threw it at her and said, this is how Americans um, think or do their homework. And Mimi said that that, that never left her, that kind of shattering. And, uh, and I was just, and that's the pictures in there in the film or pictures I did back then of beggars and poverty and and that impacted me in a way that went th- I went through my life with those images as part of what I ended up doing, what I was doing. And Mimi and then Pauline, um, I don't even really know. Pauline used to find a way to, to say something good about everything. Um, and in the film, I'm saying, yeah, I don't think I was that easy for me to be so jolly about our lives. And when you reach a level of success, I was just reading in the paper before we started, the woman who wrote the book Made turned into a Netflix series, how everybody hit her up for money. So mm-hmm. to what degree do you become the family breadwinner? Do you have to take care of your family? Or was it clear this was your money, your life, do your thing? Oh, I think whenever anybody needed it, I, of course, would be there with it but it's also funny in the film and i'm talking about <laughs> i made that money um at the vespa company you know and i came home not with just the 15 dollars a night singing uh, with fistful of money and thinking that was the you know to make everybody happy i threw it in the air and people could take what they wanted and of course <laughs> this is so stupid you know but i didn't know that and everybody resented me for it um, <laughs> I don't blame them. <laughs> so it's kind of like Brian Wilson that he was the one in the maelstrom. He has mental problems, but he still lives and the brothers are dead. And is it just luck of the draw that you're the last one standing? Oh, I don't know. You mean out of the whole family? You're right. Yeah. Um, I don't know because you're all strong. We're all physically strong. Um, and I'm physically strong, and it ain't over till it's over. No, I have so many relatives who died of cancer. So, so far, I've just been lucky. And one of the points you make in the movie, which resonates so much, is with all these people gone, you have all these memories no one can connect with that no one knows about. Yeah, I know. It's a strange feeling. It's very strange. So look around and realize nobody is going to remember that but me maybe it's freeing i can remember it the way i want to remember it and nobody's going to contest that <laughs> in fact i've written i'm writing a book of poetry and i've written a couple of things that relate to that that you each of us has our own perception of whatever happened and it can be you know that dress was blue no i remember it exactly it was pink no and you do, you remember exactly, and it does nothing to do with what color the dress was. It was probably white. But talking about these people passing, my mother died three years ago about this time. My father died long before that. But as much as she was an influence on me, there was a sense of liberation. So to mm-hmm. what degree with your parents and your sister's passing do you feel you can be more yourself as opposed to have thinking about what their judgment might be oh it's um absolutely for instance couldn't have made this film 
Um, if they were there, it was too hurtful and too confusing. Um, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure liberated in a lot of ways. You know, they don't have to worry about, you know, I mean, as, as I went, I, I didn't take the film to show me what my sisters felt. It took it to really define it. I've never heard them say because they would never, um, Pauline would never get in front of a camera. It was only because she trusted Karen O'Connor. Um, they'd say, um, I keep getting the end of the conversation. What was the question? The question was, to what degree was it liberating with liberating. your sister? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm sure it was, I'm sure it was liberating. And I hadn't thought of it in those terms. Miss sad, and then it is. There's a piece that I didn't have to put the time and energy into knowing it was a conflict. So, how has all this family stuff affected your relationship with your son? I was just thinking about him. We worked so hard. No, I, I thought he was so generous and forgiving and eloquent in the film. You know, saying really what he what it felt like to be a, a lonely little kid, um, and I. What I learned from my family is that I wasn't nurtured properly, and so how would I really know? Um, how would I know how lonely he felt? Um, I thought I was a great mom. You know, I thought everything was hunky dory, and that's what happens, and then. Um, and then it wasn't, and we've had time to, to make up for that as much as possible. After the film, I decided I was going to start a bad mother's club because I can't <laughs> say, seriously, I mean, every mother thinks she was, could have done more or did wrong. or um, So that guilt is something to deal with for the rest of my life. Forgiving oneself seems to really by far the hardest thing to do. But, um, Gabe, you know, he helps me with that. We have a wonderful therapist. When we hit a snag, we just go back, go back and say, can you help us straighten this out? So you marry David Harris. You're involved with him. You marry him. You're pregnant. He goes to jail for a long time. Mm -hmm. He comes out of jail. How do you pick up the relationship and what was it like? Well, first thing that comes to my mind is that Somebody who was, say, for instance, a Quaker type who has known themselves and and seen the world in an in an open sense, seen how unimportant we are as individuals, goes into jail with a certain mentality, and some guys would just do it. They do their time and come out. And they were okay. For David, it was really, really difficult. He was had no idea, but he was macho. Um, he was a guy, this uh, Fresno's Boy of the Year, and all of that was in there. Plus, when he was in jail, they picked on him, you know, because he was an agitator, etc. And he would be in a strike. They throw him in solitary confinement. Um, and it was very hard for him to not resent all that after he came out. So he had a really hard, 
he had a really hard go of it when he was in prison and equally as hard when he came out. And we did. We, we had a hard time. But inherently, does that separation mean it's hard to pick back up? It was for me. Uh, I mean, I'm sure for the most stable couple, the most Quakerly meditative type, it would not be easy. Uh, but I don't think it had to be as difficult as it was with David's nature being what it was. Now, David was younger than you. Steve mm-hmm. Jobs was younger than you. Is that just luck of the draw, or you like younger men? I like younger men. <laughs> Can you tell me anything about that? Oh, I'll leave it to your imagination. <laughs> okay, then let's just go to the crux of the movie is it's a retirement tour. Most people are never on stage in front of thousands of people. They're not on stage in front of tens of people. (laughs) And what they don't understand is this incredible adrenaline hit that the money is good, but a lot of people, they need that hit. So you're on the road for decades and now you're off. Do you Mm -hmm. miss that? Absolutely not for a second. Isn't that interesting? I didn't know. I had no idea, and, and that re- reflect on that in the films thing. I, I don't know what I'll feel like, and from what I hear, everybody who quits starts up again. Oh, but I had a feeling inside that this was it, and my manager and I, manager and I planned. It took three years to do this properly, and I had a strong feeling that that was going to be it. What I didn't know is um, how calm it was to stop. And I didn't know how hard I was working until I stopped. (laughs) And as soon as I stopped, I thought, how did I do that? I mean, in the film, how did I do that? Traveling like that. Um, But no, I haven't missed it. And I haven't missed the bus either, which I thought I would do. Well, I know people have been on the road for a year and a half, and it takes them six months to recover. (laughs) So how long did it take you to find your new normal after you ended not long i was already in the studio painting before it ended uh for a number of years so i just as though i just took a deep breath and shifted over to the art studio if someone called you and said oh we're doing a big peace festival come out and sing a song you would say my only regret is that i the facility to just get up and sing a song is much more limited. So, um, yes, I can. I'm not really interested to do that, but if it's something that really tugs at me, then, then I'll do it. I mean, I went to the Ukraine and just sang for kids because it tugged at me, you know. Um, but to really, to really join in, in a musical sense takes a lot of work for me. And do you care about legacy or not? No. Oh, well, the honest legacy, yeah. Do I care about archiving my life? No. (laughs) Okay, Joan, I want to thank you for taking this time to speak to my audience and being so honest. Hey, thank you. It was fun. I like to make you laugh. (laughs) And I'm laughing now. (laughs) Till next time, this is Bob Lefsetz.
Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply.